0: This is Epicenter episode 247 with guest Ryan Selkis. Welcome to Epicenter, of the show, which talks about the technologies, projects and startups driving decentralization and the global blockchain revolution. My name is Brian Fabian Crane, and I'm here today with Ryan Selkis, aka The Two-Bit Idiot. Now, probably quite a few of you have heard of Ryan Selkis, so he was writing this blog called The Two-Bit Idiot uh, back uh, a long time ago, in around 2014, which was widely read, including by myself. And he's had since, uh, quite a few interesting roles in the industry. He was at the Digital Currency Group. He was the first employee there and Digital Currency Group invested in lots and lots of blockchain startups. He was afterwards at Coindesk and he was the managing director at Coinbase and, and was there over a year. And since then, he started a new company called Masari. And, and we're going to speak quite a bit about Masari today. So uh, thanks so much for joining us today, Ryan.
1: Yeah, thanks, Brian. And and have uh, been a fan of the podcast for a while. Uh, I know we've, I think there's been like two or three points in the past where we've tried to get this on the calendar and it's just fallen through for whatever reason. So uh, it took about three years, but uh, here we are. So long overdue.
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Uh, that's how you know you're like the OG like crypto podcaster, too, because we've had that many misses over that long a period of time. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's got a podcast now, but no one has epicenter.
0: Yeah, that's true. Yeah, there has been an influx of competition, that's for sure. Well, let's, let's go back in time, right? Because I think there's probably an interesting story there. So you, you started writing about Bitcoin back in, I think it was, was it 2014 or 13? 13, uh, mm-hmm. 13 yeah. So t- tell me, tell us, how did you first learn about Bitcoin? And what was the step that you know, caused you to start writing about it?
1: Sure. So, um, you know, I got it uh, originally back in 2011. Um, I was convinced that the dollar was going to collapse. And and this was around in the U.S. There was this, uh, uh, you know, over the summer, there was this debt sequester. And they basically shut the, the government down. and They were, you know, haggling over the debt ceiling. And um, and while that was happening, I, you know, I just remember thinking, you know, the U.S. is screwed. The, the history of, you know, reserves uh, is... Uh, such that you know, reserve currencies tend to change hands every so often. And it seemed like you know, with China kind of rising up and the U.S. Uh, just not able to get any of its collective shit together, that there was going to be some you know, kind of massive uh, disruption to you know, our, our reserve currency status. And so naturally, uh, I learned about Bitcoin, um, but instead I, I ended up shorting the U.S. Treasury ETF and buying gold um and i didn't buy any bitcoin because at that point you would have had to go into a cafe and give someone you know cash in in return for a usb stick um and i'm not an engineer right so uh, so that just didn't seem seem right and and i had the thesis right that the way that uh that i played it was so colossally bad because uh the the long gold short you know uh treasuries was just a, a horrific trade um but if i had purchased bitcoin it it, it you know would have been uh, been a legendarily good trade so um, so that's when I first learned about it. Um, kind of, you know, kept loose tabs on it, uh, like you know, met so many other people, just you know, being interested. When you'd see the wire articles or you know any kind of high profile news, um, but I, I really started to pay attention when Fred Wilson invested in Coinbase, um, and then that so that was in uh, kind of mid 2013. That was right around the same time that the Winklevoss twins were, you know, had announced their ETF plans. It was the run up to 250. Uh, from you know, kind of low sing, uh, high single digits, low double digits, kind of early in two thousand thirteen, and um, and so over the summer I kind of tracked it, uh, but I didn't make the leap until uh, late August, early September, in terms of buying my first Bitcoin, um, and that was uh, you know kind of a speculative uh, in- investment, just like so many others, because I thought you know this is cool and you know I want to just in case so I want to have a little bit, um, and then when the um, when the Fed shut down Silk Road. It was, you know, kind of an aha moment because I thought, okay, this isn't just going to be for, you know, terrorists and and kitty pornographers and, uh, and and drugs. You know, you could actually um, see this being for for global payments, not just black markets. Um, and even though, you know, I, I I'd still argue that black markets were the killer app for Bitcoin and building up the monetary base. Um, and and I got very lucky because that happened to coincide with me uh, deferring my offer to, to business school and shutting down the startup that I was working on. So all of a sudden I was supposed to go to either MIT or work on the startup. I ended up winding down the startup and I had like 10 months on my hand before I would be able to go the next cycle uh, and, and the following year. So uh, so I basically had to you know, look a little bit more carefully at Bitcoin uh, because six weeks later, it had rallied about six or seven times from when I purchased it. And as someone who was newly unemployed and, and trying to figure out what to do for ten months, uh, I I had to make a you know kind of buy sell hold decision first. You know, how do I pay for my rent? Um, should I should I sell this thing and count my you know count my blessings that it worked out? Um, and and I ended up liquidating my 401k, um, buying more Bitcoin, and um, and then using the rest for for kind of rent the next uh, the next ten months or so. So. Um, it was from a small base, but I went—I went about as all-in as as you could probably go, uh, and that included you know kind of writing on a daily basis, um, which you know at that point was the easiest way to learn, and 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 really no one was doing it outside of the Reddit threads.
0: Yeah, that, that's pretty aggressive of liquidating your four hundred one k. Actually, I didn't know that because even back then I felt like you were sort of always on the edge and always like kind of unsure, a bit critical, and a bit like ah, maybe this is all going to collapse pretty soon.
1: Well, I think I think part of that might have been because, um, well, two things. One, because um, I think I'm uh, try I try to be hyper rational um, and kind of poke holes in all the arguments. And if you know, when I started writing, it was in that kind of parabolic run up. So uh, I think I actually got a pretty decent executive audience because I wasn't just one of the guys uh, posting the, the the roller coaster GIF and all the to the moon threads, you know, on Reddit, which is you know it was it was. Uh, it, was a little bit hot and heavy. I think everybody was was high fiving a little bit too much leading up to you know the end of 2013. And then of course it kind of it kind of crashed. And then uh, you know the other major component is within you know two and a half three months of writing and getting into the industry. I'd met most of the executives uh, because it was so small, and I went to a couple of conferences, and and they kind of enjoyed the blog. And um, and then you know the Malcox documents fell into my lap, um, and I ended up publishing them. So uh, so I had plenty of reasons to be skeptical. And then, you know, I also was uh, on, on, on kind of one hand, this this whistleblower that people respected, on the other, like kind of in some circles, public enemy number one, um, because, you know, uh, uh, the, because the market obviously really cratered after that and it was a, a big black eye. Um, but, uh, you know, it was it was it was a hell of a, an opening six months to get into a new industry and, and then, you know, have that kind of combination of things happen. Epic rally. You meet everybody in short order because you know this this silly little pseudonym takes off and then ultimately you're you're kind of unmasked um around I, I think, you know, probably still the biggest story to date, which is the Mt. Gox hack.
0: Yeah, I have vague memories of that actually now that that you mention it. But so so why why did you choose to write under a pseudonym?
1: So the pseudonym was actually one of the best ideas that some of my uh some of my you know finance friends had. Um because I started uh, writing the, the blog, really it was just kind of like a daily email. I, 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 you know, sent a, I'd sent an email around to some of my uh, friends at, at this firm called Summit Partners, where I started my career and I said, you guys should check out Coinbase. I think it's gonna be you know, just a, a, a really hot company. Um, and they're like in the middle of this industry, they're kind of the only trusted brand and, and you know, they solve a lot of the you know, kind of onboarding pain points. And I'd basically done a back of the napkin on you know, what Coinbase could be worth. Um, and how much money they were making. And, and at the time during the run up, they were probably making, you know, uh, a couple million dollars a month. Right. So, you know, at, at least 20, $25 million run rate. And I know that I was close because I posted this under the pseudonym and, um, and Brian Armstrong actually messaged me and he's, he's like, how do you know so much? Who are you? (laughs) Um, So, but it was basically just like backing into their fees. And at that point they were posting like volumes and and all that. So it it was, you know, it was actually pretty straightforward. Um, you just had to do kind of like all the digging in, the, in their, you know, kind of company blog at that point. Um, but one of my, uh, you know, that, that email kind of quickly got forwarded and all of a sudden I had like 20 people on this email thread. And I said, hey, you know, uh, I, I at that point was kind of replying to the email daily with updates. Um, and then one of them said, you know you, you know, you like writing about this, you should start a blog. But by the way, um, this is probably going to end in, in tears and you don't want like a black mark next to your reputation for whatever job you get next. You don't want to be like the Bitcoin guy that was in bed with all the, you know, the kitty pornographers and terrorists and and drug dealers. So you should you should create a, a pseudonym if you're going to post any of this stuff online. So I did, and and you know, um, and it stuck. And then you know, naturally, uh, the pseudonym lasted for about five weeks, I think, and then uh, and then it was all over. But um, it's funny how things work out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know you
1: know it's funny, Brian. Like I, I've thought about this, you know, in, in terms of fortunate accidents. Um, I think the only reason that I was able to get any traction with the writing was because I had the pseudonym because, um, I feel like, you know, you always try to like put on airs for people and it's, it's very, very hard to kind of write write an authentic voice. Um, if you're trying to to impress people and you're trying to basically show how smart you are and you're, you know, and, and you're kind of calculating, um, I was just shooting from the hip and having fun with it. And, and, you know, I think, um, forget who says it. Uh, uh, it's like, I think maybe be like an Oscar Wilde quote, uh, you know, give a man a mask and he'll tell you the truth. Um, and that's kind of what happened. Right. And then it just stuck. And, and you know, people liked it. So, you know, uh, it doubled down, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. I, I, I think that is one of the qualities of, of your writing, this sort of, you know, frankness and directness. And, and yeah, I, I totally see that the association with the pseudonym so now, back then, the first thing you did in an industry—I mean, besides this writing—I think the first proper job was to join the digital currency group. And like, what was the digital currency group that, back then? And what was your what was the kind of evolution it went through while you were there?
1: Um, so I was I was kind of a Skunkworks employee. Uh, uh, Barry Silver's old company was called Second Market. And um, and DCG was envisioned as a combination between second markets, digital currency related businesses, which were its trading desk as broker dealer and then um, the uh, sponsor of the Bitcoin Investment Trust, which later became Grayscale. And then the broker dealer became Genesis. Um, But the legacy second market business uh, ended up getting spun out and sold to NASDAQ um, in 2015. so you have these digital currency focused businesses that were kind of pivoting from the uh, existing second market business. Um, and, and then Barry's uh, kind of personal investment portfolio, which got merged into one, and that became Digital Currency Group. Uh, I say Skunkworks employee because um, I was working only on digital currency things, but technically DCG didn't exist until nine months after I joined so you know i come in with the you know generally the pitch that you know i can i can help during this transition you know i've got the investing background so i can take a lot of the blocking tackling off your plate for seed investing um help with the fundraise help build the core team um, and uh and you know ultimately uh we could go one of a few different ways you know after we we do these kind of first few things but one of the things that i'd like to do is kind of start a company under the dcg umbrella And so that kind of played out, you know, to a T, we, you know, we recruited uh, Meltem Demir's who I think many people uh, know in the industry as well, uh, who's now CoinShares, Um, she uh, joined in May, Um, she actually, ironically, would have been one of my classmates at MIT, and was connected uh, through a a mutual friend uh, that that I had known kind of dating back to 2013. And then we, uh, you know, we recruited a couple of other people to the the core team, um, closed the rounds, and then that fall we met with Jeremy Bonney, who was the old CoinDesk CEO, and 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 you know started discussing the acquisition. But um, yeah, I mean, the first uh, the first year or so at DCG was it was essentially forming the company, keeping the lights on, and uh, and and kind of positioning it for you know the 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 next step.
0: Cool, and and then of course you took over at and you ran CoinDesk for for quite some time. Mm-hmm. Now, the issue of coin uh, of journalism and, and, and the cryptocurrency space seems to be an interesting one, right? There's so much money in this industry and, and people have often been very critical of, of publications like Coindesk at the same time, also very critical of public of any kind of mainstream coverage because often, you know, it would be flawed or misinformed. Like wh- why is journalism and cryptocurrency, why is this such a difficult thing to have those two work together?
1: Well, I mean, first of all, everybody's kind of making it up as they go along. Um, information moves in incredibly fast. Ideas change, projects pivot, personnel changes. Um, you You get 10 experts in the room debating uh, you know BFT consensus systems, and nine are going to shit on one, and then they're going to go round robin, and, and like they're basically all going to you know poke holes in the other's arguments. Um, and, you know, we see this playing out in real time, you know, online, right? Like uh, folks from Ethereum criticizing EOS who are criticizing Definity, And it's just, um, you know, uh, this, this big, uh, loud and incredibly difficult to decipher uh, ecosystem where uh, if you look at this probabilistically, most of the critics are going to be right. Um, but, you know, if, if you look at this more like an angel or, or seed investor, um, there, there are some projects that are, are truly going to figure out the equation and, and ultimately scale into just massively important protocols and, and businesses. And you really don't know until you know, many, many years uh, down the line. So reporting on um, anything related to crypto is, is always tough because you know, not only do you have this you know, extremely fast-moving environment where you know, a lot of people disagree, but it's very, very deeply technical subject matter and uh you know quite frankly there aren't many computer scientists that are journalists right um because you know for one thing the 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 economics just don't work right i mean you know Solidity developers uh, are getting paid what half a million dollars a year or or you know more than that right now just given the uh the 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 immense shortage and and you know kind of the ICO boom um and you know journalists like that's just uh you'd I don't even know if like the editor in chief of like the New York times makes that much money. Right. <laughs> so, um, uh, you know, maybe like there's a few people in, in, in journalism that make that kind of money. But, um, uh, so there's just, I, I think a gap in terms of like, what the market value is for that expertise and, and kind of where it's deployed. Um, and, and, you know, the, the other side is, um, like you, you basically can do no, right. Cause if you try to basically say, um, here's what this group is, saying is true and you know if if these three things end up being true then yes this project could get legs and and you basically just uh report on on what the project's lead uh wants you to know Uh, then you're accused of being a shill and if you take the other side and you basically just get a bunch of like criticisms for that same um for that same project well, then you're just accused of spreading like FUD and and, and, and you know, being malicious and trying to like denigrate the entrepreneurs in the industry. And the funniest part is, you know, Coindesk is a great example because I think they do a great job, you know, kind of balancing or, you know, at least, the, you know, they, they work their asses off to, to get it done, Pete Rizzo and the rest of the team. Um, but many times those same arguments will come on the same article, right? So you'll get people that are like, I can't believe you're shilling Ether. I can't believe you're crapping on, you know, Sharding and Casper and like all this, stuff. like in the same exact article, right? So, um, and I've generally found that the articles that I post like that um are some of the best ones, uh, right. Cause it, it means that you've kind of accurately like given given both sides of the uh, of the argument. Um so that's that's I think one of the major things um that is problematic. And 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 frankly, it's one of the reasons that I think um some curation uh, markets are, are so interesting, and uh, and 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 just other curation tools are so interesting. Um, I really like. Uh, I think what Token Daily is doing, obviously, you know, what we're doing at Misari with our homepage and and that kind of news summaries and uh, and and kind of condensed research summaries, I think is uh, is very valuable. Um, and I think we're going to see a lot more like that um, to help people, you know, kind of filter through the noise.
0: So when it comes to Misari. I think you know there's sort of a backdrop to my which is that you know these big problems that you see in the industry and kind of failings that you see in the industry. Like, what is what are the things that bother you the most or disturb you the most about like what's going on in the crypto space today?
1: Uh, well, uh, we claim that it's decentralized and equitable, and um, and it's all about the technology, and that's all bullshit. Uh, just cover to cover, uh, it's just not true. Um, most of these tokens that are being sold are being, you know, held by the same syndicate of investors. It gets them, you know, early access to all the deals. Because um, it's, you know, probably not decentralized. Um, they're getting massive discounts. So, you know, by the time the the retail investors actually have an opportunity to purchase these, very often um, they're buying it, you know, a ten or, or twenty or fifty x multiple of of you know what the what the insiders are paying. Um, and these things are trading publicly with massive information asymmetries, um, where you know the the investors, even when they are liquid, right, even when they're trading on exchanges, like the insiders of the projects, the investors that you know have gotten in early, they just have a different level of of access to information than anyone else that's you know buying through Binance or or Bitfinex or you know even uh, you know, Coinbase or Gemini. Um, so maybe not the latter uh, uh just yet because they're not really touching tokens, but you know, I think you get the point. Uh so um what we're what we're really trying to do at, at Masari is level the playing field and just usher in some sanity around disclosures and, and kind of common sense um aggregation of kind of key information. And and where we're starting is um is super rudimentary, right? Like supply curves. How do your tokens vest over time, and and do you disclose when you make a sale um, outside of the initial ICO? Uh, who are the verified personnel on the team who who you know, generally speak on behalf of the project? What communication channels do you use, and uh, and and I think it's things like that where um, you want to know if you know project lead Bob Smith right uh, just ends up making a material change to the the, the token issuance schedule as you know uh, as part of their proposed upgrade to the network protocol and and you want to be able to like see how that trickles down to other investors, right? This new inflation or this, you know, this kind of arbitrary change to the schedule. And you want to know, um, like on par with all of the insiders at the project that issued the token, you want to know, you know, at the same time as the investors, it backed it early. Um, And there is no expectation that that happens right now uh, within crypto. So you've got this really weird, like, you know, these things are quasi private, quasi public. Um, and it, 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 what it, what's gonna happen is it's gonna create a real mess once people start losing a serious amount of money. Um, and that's happened a little bit this year, but I don't think we've seen the worst of it yet. Um, and it hasn't been quite big enough. So I think I actually worry about the next leg up, right? If, if you know, a Bitcoin ETF gets approved and you know institutional custody gets solved, we're gonna see another mega rally in Bitcoin. And whatever, when whatever you know, Bitcoin rallies, it brings up all of the rest of the tokens with it, regardless of of kind of quality. It just it, you know, you've got you know the the quote unquote shitcoin rally, and um, and when that one bursts, it's going to be an order of magnitude larger than kind of the last six months setback, and that's when it actually creates some real pain for for a really large community of bag holders. Uh, large enough where governments get involved, regulators get involved, and and, and there could be a, a serious crackdown. So, um, we come at this from like let's protect you know retail investors, let's aggregate information on these projects, and just solve like the practical issue of of you know where's a a single source of truth um, for information on on you know the universe of tokens, um, and then ultimately you know um, I'm 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 pretty negative on a lot of what's been going on. But I'm very long-term bullish on, on the tech and the industry, and and you know kind of the the good guys that are, are you know actually working on building the infrastructure here. So it it really does matter to us that we you know help fix some of the macro problems, because I care about where this industry is going to be in ten years, and you know if we fuck it up now, it's going to set us back for quite a long time. Um, so there's there's like a self-regulatory like let's let's clean up our own house um, type of angle to to what we're what, what we're building at Masari.
0: Yeah, no, I I think you, you point out some, definitely some massive issues. Now I'm, I'm curious if we can get into like a little bit more detail here when you, when you kind of talk about like, let's say this bubble bursting, people getting hurt, like how, what do you think are some examples of ways that the current information asymmetry could be like abused and misused that then leads to these like massive, uh, pain among, let's say retail investors.
1: Well, and it doesn't even have to be nefarious, right? Um, so a perfect example is um, is Civic, and 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 I think the way that Vinny and, and his team structured their token sale, I think it was above board. I think they you know tried to do things the right way. I think um, you know everybody got access to the same price. They had this auction structure, so they did a lot of things really right. Um, and this was last July, but um, but you know a couple of weeks ago he emails uh, me and says, "Hey, uh, we." We, we just had the first anniversary of our token uh, distribution, and that means 110 million CVC tokens have vested and are now liquid, but we're not planning to sell them. Like We're, we're going to keep them on our balance sheet, and we've just posted this blog post about um, you know, uh, when we'll sell and, and, and how we're going to commit to you know, disclosing any, any secondary sales of this kind of liquid supply that's on our balance sheet now. And this happened, uh, invested on a Friday, and we had this conversation on Tuesday the following week. And this is a guy that, that, that is like, we're not selling this, right? We're not going to dump this on the market, even though it's liquid. But, but that information was public. Just no one knew about it. And if you kind of back into the, the amount of money that actually equated to, you're talking about like $25, $30 million um, worth of tokens that were just unlocked overnight, according to the smart contract. And that's you know, multiples of the daily volume traded in, in CVC tokens. So you can imagine you know, other teams that might say something like, oh, well, this was in the smart contract. So we said it was going to vest over this time period. And then you wonder why you know, the token X has, has crashed 50%. It's because the team just vested and, and liquidated their holdings of like a vested you know, percentage of tokens. So um, that's kind of like an obvious area. And, and and some of this is public information, right? So, you know, that's why I think we're starting very, like remedial with the disclosures, and then we can kind of get more assertive over time, um, according to, you know, kind of community governance standards. I, I don't think we want to reinvent the SEC, because, um, you know, that, I don't think that system necessarily works for crypto anyway. Um, but there are, you know, kind of low friction ways to, um, to at least clean up some of the, like, very egregious type of activity and, And and major information asymmetries. So I think that's number one. Um, And then, you know, number two, which is a lot trickier, is um, how do you understand the investor incentives, right? So I want to know if um, if a project that is raising money at a at a six billion dollar valuation, I want to know what the what the existing stakeholders uh, have at risk. Um, and and over what time period that vests, because if someone invests at a you know a five million dollar valuation and then the project turns around, and uses their name to advertise that they're raising money at a at thousand times that, um, well that's that's a pretty big problem um, because the implication is, and recent and Union Square have invested in this, therefore it's a good high quality project that you have access to, lucky you. Um, and and in reality, Yes, they had access uh, to this deal at uh, a penny on the dollar, and you have access to a very, very different deal. Uh, but by the way, the team has made no material progress in the five months between those two events so um so I think it's important there where you know you at least understand you know what's at risk for the for the you know kind of earliest stage investors um and I'm not suggesting that information is just going to clean this up. it's not but um uh, it'll it'll certainly mitigate some of the damage um if you have this all this information in one place and 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 very importantly you know you can build a network around it so you know our whole angle is we're not gonna gather all this data and then resell it. Um someone has to create the kind of common library that um, the Bloombergs, the Moody's the S&P's, you know, all the other data services and financial services can kind of build on top of um, and 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 reference as a single source of information.
0: So so is this situation, which is, you know, I totally agree with the examples, right? It's, It's a really tricky situation and has potentially really bad outcomes. Is this like, what's the cause of this? Is it primarily driven by, you know, lack of regulation and liquidity of all of these assets? Or do you think there are some other key drivers to this problem?
1: Well, there are jurisdictional challenges too, right? So, um, so one, you know, you get a lot of projects that if there's a huge crackdown in the, in the U.S. or a certain state or whatever, you know, they're going to move overseas. Um, and you know, the other issue is uh, there are there haven't really been any precedents. So, so, there's a practical issue where you know the SEC, which might be the most aggressive enforcer uh, of, of of you know uh, coming after unregistered securities offerings and and with respect to tokens. Um, taking a close look at, at enforcement actions, they're being very, very careful. And just practically speaking, they can't, they can't play this game of whack-a-mole and try to go after every project because they, they don't have the resources. And when they do finally make a case against someone, they want it to be a slam dunk. So I, I think it's very um, unlikely that they go after something like XRP and Ripple because you know, Ripple can, for, can afford you know, $100 million of legal fees, no problem. Um, And, you know, they've got the former SEC commissioner on their their legal staff, right? So you kind of think about, like, all these deep-pocketed projects that are playing this, you know, uh, regulatory shell game of sorts, and it becomes difficult to enforce. Uh, On the flip side, I think it becomes very easy for the projects that are are at least trying to do things the right way to signal, um, you know, our intentions are good, right? The market is frothy. Our intentions are good. Here's how we're trying to structure things for the long term and what that will ultimately help on the other side is uh, you know if, if we're just basically if we're going after super remedial basic information and disclosures and a project says no um well then that's that's kind of a pretty significant red flag that if I were a regulator I would l- want to look at um because they're going to go after like the truly fraudulent you know worst actors right now get the easy wins and then kind of build up over time so um you know i i i view uh some self-regulatory mechanism as ultimately much more effective than anything that we're going to see from on high.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did do a, a podcast a while ago with someone who used to be an SEC at the SEC, a prosecutor, and that was very illuminating too in this regard, and kind of made it uh, very obvious that the SEC will be completely incapable of going uh, of really making a big dent in this, uh, at least uh, at least for a long time. Now. Let's speak a bit about the this TCR idea. So TCR, of course, stands for Token Created Registry, which has come up, um, you know, quite frequently in the last year. I, I don't, um, and the idea of or one of the idea of Messari is to, uh, is that basically you create this registry, right, of, of good projects or projects that that comply with certain reporting standards, and that then, you know, I as a consumer investor, I can say, okay, I, I, I I can look at that list, and and I can know that there are certain quality standards that are met by that project, and I have certain information that I can rely on. Talk a little bit about TCR. Why is that the right design for this?
1: Yep. So I mean, it goes back to the coordination challenge amongst regulators and and kind of industry. Um, if you look at um, you know self regulatory efforts in in the existing financial system, uh, like Finra is is the great example. Uh, of, that, that regulates financial services and like all the broker dealers and, and, you know, does licensing for, you know, both broker dealers and then, you know, uh, securities professionals. So, you know, FINRA basically exists at the uh, mandate of the SEC. And um, you know, it's an 80 year old organization. Basically it's self regulatory body regulates broker dealers and kind of licensed securities professionals. Um, But it doesn't exist without kind of the SEC's mandate within crypto. There is no SEC because you would need some global regulatory body that would set standards and, and you know, have some type of enforcement teeth that could penalize uh, you know, fraudulent actors or, or folks that are out of compliance with standards. So the question becomes, how do you bootstrap uh, any sort of self-regulatory mechanism um, without a central regulator? And what we've proposed is that you might be able to do this with a token curated registry. Um, now the TCR uh, is is you know pretty interesting because you could uh, economically incent uh, exchanges, funds, underwriters, other kind of financially motivated you know strategic actors to actually buy stake in a system that votes on the eligible participants in that system um, and 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 ultimately curates a list of projects that abide by certain standards and then ultimately, Helps to uh, evolve those standards over time and make any adjustments that are necessary. So at the end of the day, um, if you, you know, even if you have a one percent stake in the registry, you know, you could either vote directly on projects or delegate to a proxy, um, who should ultimately be on that list. And 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 the way that I like to think about it is I use a university example all the time. Um, If you have a board of trustees, their primary motivation for, uh, for the university is to in, in preserve the integrity of the university or, or you know even in, increase its profile, boost its profile. At the end of the day, what they're really trying to do is um, continue to boost the credibility and, and, and the, the value of the diploma that you get, the credential that you get from graduating. So you've got the board of trustees that are managing the university at the high level, and then you've got applicants that really, really want to get into the university just so that they have that credential long-term. Um, and and you know, that's really what they're paying for is the piece of paper at the end of the four years and the social signal that they've met certain standards and now they're an employable professional. The issue is the, um, with, with current TCRs, everybody's assuming that the, uh, that the token holders are going to vote directly on the applicants. And that's like saying that the board of trustees at a university are going to review every single applicant's um, college essay and we know that doesn't happen in reality what happens instead is they actually delegate to an admissions council right a group of specialists that are going to validate the integrity of all the applicants and and ultimately curate the list of, of students that get admitted so i think a good tcr in the way that we've envisioned ours is one where you get a bunch of strategically aligned token holders at the kind of governance level um you have all the projects at the base layer that are you know interested in applying so that they can you know have this credential, the social signal that they're at least trying to do things the right way. And then ultimately, um, a fee market emerges where there are uh, in, you know, healthfully incentivized uh, auditors or validators that will review all of these applications and, and kind of sign off on different projects and ensure that they are actually in compliance with the standards that they say they are because um, they'll earn all the network fees and, and they'll earn all the application fees that are coming from this pool of applicants. So, you know, that I think is, is a really interesting mechanism that is much, much harder to, um, to game than, uh, kind of the current TCRs that have been out in the wild, which, you know, where you have kind of quorum issues, uh, you have free rider issues, you, you you know, folks that, you know, basically, you know, continue to just own the tokens, but do nothing with them except for speculate that the future value, of the network's going to go up. So I think the, the way that we're thinking about this is, you know, how do you, how do you truly, uh, incentivize work and validation of good projects? And ensure that you don't um, just distribute a, a token that might govern a list like this um, to you know non-strategic investors, and that would include retail folks. Um, the reason that we like this so much is you know it, we could build a lot of what we want to build at Masari without the TCR, but the issue that we would get with um, our our you know database of projects in particular is. Um, you'd have a, a staleness and data completeness problem, right? So think about Crunchbase um, or you know, AngelList, basically like any private uh, company market, um, you know, uh, information repository. Uh, the information there is often inaccurate or incomplete just because private companies don't necessarily have uh, much reason to disclose all this information. Um, and, and there is no real penalty uh, for, you know, a, a three-month lag in updating your Crunchbase profile. Um, and the reason for that is pretty simple. Like these, these shares don't change hands, right? They don't trade. Um, and if if they do, if there is some type of secondary sales, usually amongst other, um, you know, accredited investors and other venture funds, you know, folks that are gonna do their own diligence and actually invest in one slug, not on a day-to-day kind of trading basis. So, um, you know, Crunchbase works for private markets even though it's it's not uh, perfect because, um, you know, people do their diligence and, and these are kind of like block sales of, of shares. Uh, in crypto, with these assets trading 24/7, you've got kind of the worst elements of crunch base right now, which is data incompleteness and and you know really no expectation that it's going to get updated. Um, and then you know kind of public market liquidity. So the TCR is really designed to help bring some type of teeth to um, disclosures uh, around you know when whenever there's a material change to your project, right? So like how, how do we ultimately get you know, teams to uh, to you know update these profiles in a timely manner so that the information doesn't just trickle first to like the venture capitalists or the you know the insiders of the companies themselves.
0: Great, I would love to you know, challenge you a little bit on the analogy you use. So you use the example of a university, right? And you have these trustees, and then they want to kind of protect the 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 value of being on that list of like university graduate, right? But then when you look when you talked about Misari and this token creator registered registry there you talked about okay having strategic uh, people and I think you mentioned exchanges and then white paper mentions uh, crypto funds and stuff like that 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 ha- hold some of those tokens but of course if you, if you sort of translate that to the university example right there would be like a trustee who also has some sort of stake potentially right in in the you know future revenue potential of a particular actual you know university applicant or university mm-hmm. member who, who wants to get a degree right so they obviously have this you know or if you now translate that to the crypto world right let's say a token fund they have invested in a particular early project it may not be uh completely legit or it may be a conflicted project but they, they do want that on mm-hmm. on that whitelist. list so, so how do you think that it's going to Play out if if there are all of those other economic interests that are may not be apparent and may be hard to monitor.
1: Yeah, Um, well, I actually think that's a good thing, right? So, so uh, with with the caveat that you want to make sure that the initial token supply is well distributed, because if you just raise money from a couple of investors, then you know of course they're they're basically going to talk their own book and say and, and vote in their own projects, right? But if it's a, a widely distributed group of, of initial backers and, and voters and, and you know, interested parties in the TCR, um, you're gonna have a lot of disagreements. Um, and I would imagine that you know there is some equilibrium where the uh, the group kind of agrees, okay, even if I didn't invest in this project, they are doing things the right way. We have respect for the team. And, and yes, they certainly meet these standards. Uh, and on the other hand, if there was a really shady portfolio company at one of the token holders, Um, they would just be overruled by the other, you know, 15, 20 different funds uh, or or exchanges that were voting. So um, I think that kind of works itself out naturally. The the caveat to that is how do you mitigate the risk of those tokens ever being sent, like held centrally, right? And and, and how do you, you know, prevent people from accumulating outsized positions in the registry and, and ultimately, you know, a large degree of influence over who actually gets onto the list. And and there's, I think, a couple ways to do this. One, you kind of control the initial distribution and, and you ensure that there's kind of vesting schedules and, and these are relatively illiquid to start. Um, two, I think it's important for whoever the initial incubator or the registry uh, is to be able to uh, add partners and, and continue to unwind the treasury over time. And, and we've kind of proposed selling you know X percent at time zero and then Unwinding the other, you know, uh, like remaining token supply that we'd hold on our balance sheet over, like, some defined period of time, like three years, four years, whatever. Um, but actually selling it in a structured way, not just having it vest and having it be uncertain, but actually saying every six months we're going to do this auction. So there is this predictable liquidity in the system, and we're, these are the only eligible buyers. So that I think that's another way to do it. And then the last way um, is to incorporate identity and reputation um, into the system in some way. And I don't know exactly what that looks like yet, but um, but I think for certain TCRs, it's it's definitely easier than, than in others to uh, basically know, not necessarily the votes um, of everybody that's casting them, but to know what the voting power is of all of the participants, right? So imagine knowing who uh, has 100% uh, if you're if you're going to split the pie chart of Bitcoin mining capacity, it'd be really helpful to know like what percentage Bitmain versus Bitfury versus you know any of the other major miners have at any given point in time. And with a reputation system and a TCR and and kind of the stake based voting, um, you might be able to track that over time. So you can you can basically guarantee that at least on chain um, there is this distribution of voting. Um, now that wouldn't present Prevent you know bribery uh, attacks or, or kind of you know off-chain collusion or anything like that. But if there were collusion, um, you would know who the parties were that were were you know colluding, right? And 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 at least you know now there's some reputational stake if uh, if the quality of the registry declines over time. So I, I think um, in our system in particular, this isn't true for all TCRs, but we've thought you know very carefully about the specific risks in our system and kind of the trade-offs. Um, and, and so while I think TCRs are exciting, I, I tend to agree that they are, uh, you know, in general, um, they're not one size fits all, right? And, and they are a useful mechanism, but but the, kind of the mechanism design is going to depend on, on the use case.
0: Let, let's say there's a particular project and the expectation is that project would, you know, let's say they do their token sale and then they say, okay, we're going to have this much for software development, this much for marketing. And then we're also going to have you know, this amount, which is going to be used in the budget to pay for this application fee, because presumably for these tokens to be actually worth something, those application fees have to be very high. Or how do you, how is the value of those registries tokens going to be driven?
1: Yeah, I think, um, you know, we, we've started out with a $25,000 application fee. Um, and, um, and I think it's, it's high enough where, uh, people are, are you know, demonstrating uh, that they actually are taking this seriously and, and, and that it's not a negligible amount that they can just kind of throw away. It's low enough um, where people uh, are, are probably willing to pay it and, um, and, and it doesn't take a, a massively long sales cycle to kind of convince people the merit of this. Um, but it's also high enough to ward off um, frivolous challenges to a, a given candidate's registry status. So um, you know, if if you only had five hundred dollars at stake, you might get you know, uh, you know, dozens of trolls that are just trying to you know poke holes and you know, oh, uh, you know the you know Vinnie tweeted this thing uh, and or or you know the the Gollum guys tweeted t- tweeted this thing and so that means that they're out of compliance with you know the disclosures framework that they committed to and they should be booted you know so it it it, it kind of prevents uh, it's like a, a spam prevention feature right so instead of like a fee market or, you know, gas market, um, ours is, is, you know, a little bit chunkier in the sense that it takes, you know, five figures of value, maybe more over time to, uh, to actually challenge these, uh, these, these applicants. So it'd have to be something pretty material that they, uh, that they, you know, welched on.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'm, st- I'm still struggling a little bit because, you know, let's say there is a thousand projects that, per year that actually kind of applying, go through this process, pay this fee, which is a lot, right? Like a thousand projects is probably not a thousand, you know, legitimate token projects today. You know, I think that probably significantly less or fewer. Not yet, right? Um, not but yet. if
1: you if you think about tokenized securities, right? And, and and you know, what what that market might look like over time, you know, the end game for us, um, you know, Edgar is an inferior system, right? So if you were able to automate accounting and disclosures, via smart contracts long-term for all types of securities and all types of you know, new, new types of uh, uh, programmatic assets, smart assets, then that becomes uh, a, a very, very large market. Um, and the whole concept of doing like a 10K or a 10Q becomes laughably obsolete because information is available in, in you know, basically real time.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess where, where I was sort of leading to was that, sure, right? Like the market can grow enormously, security tokens, and then also the, this kind of volume can grow enormously. But if you if you think of the security of this registry as as this central self-regulatory body, and, it, and if you see that as being uh, kind of protected through game theory and through the value of this token, then it seems like it's a sort of disproportionate knowing that the value of this token or the, or the volume that's coming in in transaction fees is going to be very low compared to, you know, the massive, massive potential benefit that could be had in gaming this system you know, if it actually gets that standing?
1: Well, you know, I, I don't think that the $25,000 is static either, right? So um, so to your point, if if this becomes a critical piece of, of market infrastructure, um, the token holders could ultimately vote on raising the fees or they could uh, vote on, on, you know, uh, adding an annual assessment um, to projects that, you know, want to continue to be on the registry. So it becomes recurring. Um, they could, you know, ultimately, Add other types of credentials uh, that they'd like to see, right? So you know, Finra has you know they 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 you know charge fees to the broker dealers themselves annually, but then they also do all the credentialing for the brokers, right? So so do you verify personnel um, that are in you know certain certain roles or certain um, you know positions within the industry? So I I think you know there are many ways to kind of get there, but you know the back of the envelope math is you know if if long term. You get, you know, there's there's uh, two thousand projects paying twenty five thousand dollars a year. Um, that's fifty million in network revenue. That's a lot, right? Um, and and that's a hell of a lot more than just about any other you know crypto economic system right now. And if you kind of use traditional valuation metrics, um, I don't think that this is a security because the um, the token holders would be the ones doing the actual work in exchange. Uh, for for earning those those network fees, but um, you can still look at it like a an income producing asset, and and that kind of right to work token, you know, I don't know if, like what the multiple is, but you assume that's pretty high margin revenue. That could be you know multiple of twenty on that. That gets you to like a a um, billion dollar network value for a token, that isn't just backed by error, right? It's like actually backed by real you know economics that are flowing through the system. So um, so that's what I think gets us like super, super excited um, is, you know, in a world where, you know, this replaces traditional reporting frameworks um, and you can actually bootstrap the network and, and develop critical mass and, and, and get to kind of the, the critical part of the S curve you need to get before it really takes off. Um, then it, yeah, it, it, it would be very valuable um, as a public good number one, but also um, very valuable, uh financially because you know the 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 system was well designed and the incentives were aligned does it start as a billion dollar network token of course not right and and so that's why you know when you know as we build this out and we think about like who the next partners are going to be it's going to be you know significantly lower than that um but um you know the 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 flip side and i always add this as a caveat cuz i've been i think very outspoken on on icos in general none of our natural users are individuals right they're they're all institutions. Uh, uh, whether you're talking about the projects that are applying or the entities that are facilitating resale or, or you know kind of this whole economic boom, they're all almost by definition accredited investors um, based on their size. So we actually don't need to worry about uh, a lot of the um, like pump and dump type of schemes. I think because I have no interest in in you know letting this trade publicly anytime soon, uh, and we would only roll that out like very carefully over over a multi-year period.
0: It, it would be an extremely exciting public good, and, and I hope I hope it will exist. So I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed for you. So I, I would also love to understand a little bit how this token-created registry, which my understanding is just kind of the central idea of Messari, fits in with some of the other things that you've worked on. So, I mean, there are these, you know, reports on projects created by the community. And of course, that, that very much fits into, I think, with this reporting. But then there's also uh, Misari.io, which you've recently sort of touted as the you know front page for crypto. And you said that it was going to be a Coindesk competitor. And then you also acquired uh, OnChainFX, which is something a bit similar to uh, CoinMarketCap, though I'm sure you think superior. So how, how does that... Fit together.
1: Well, uh, I don't think we want to build an editorial desk. Number one, so uh, so, not quite a CoinDesk competitor. Um, but former CoinDesk managing director competes with CoinDesk is, is always a sexier title than um, than another uh, uh, you know another blog pops up. But you know, I do think that what we're doing on the curation side is 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 super important and interesting, just to help people you know kind of filter through the noise. And, and the way that I always look at content is that it's, a, it's an engagement mechanism, right? Um, it's marketing. So I, I don't think that there's much uh, that's, that's interesting for us to do on the kind of content curation side other than continue to drive eyeballs and engagement with Masari as a brand um, to drive people into our community, to help you know, solve some of these communal research uh, uh, problems, and then ultimately um, to get projects on board with the idea that we should be kind of the initial maintainer and and curator of this information uh, with respect to their disclosures because a very natural question for a project um, now fortunately i've been around for a while so a lot of these guys know me which i think gives us a good head start but a natural question is um you know why are we going to make all of our disclosures with you uh when no one visits your site right like i want i want to make sure that if we update this information it kind of percolates out to you know 100 different data services. And so, um, you know, it's it's about kind of brand community engagement and also just, you know, audience development and, and making sure that we have that, that essentially every single data partner within the industry that might want to build on top of that disclosures library and actually pull that information as a single source of truth, as a base layer, um, that we're very visible because what we're trying to do is kind of build the low, like the base data layer for, for crypto. And so to your point about uh, on-chain FX, you know, you've got, kind of curated analysis and 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 news that you can categorize by sector, by asset. Um, and then you have all of the quantitative information uh, about these uh, about these projects uh, and all of the kind of like on blockchain information. And that gives us two really important touch points. One is with all the exchanges and all the relayers as decentralized exchange gets you know more important. Uh, and two, you know, in order for us to make the uh, the TCR reporting seamless. Um, we actually have to build quite a bit of, of, on blockchain infrastructure where, you know, we're actually spinning up network nodes and like Ethereum is a great example, right? We need like a really strong Ethereum infrastructure so that we can, uh, seamlessly pull all this information from ERC 20 assets. And ultimately we, you know, as we, as we build our library or others build on top of our library, it's trivial to add kind of snippets of code to, um, to a tokens, you know, wallet address. Um, and, and, you know, automatically disclose that information into our database, you know, via some type of hash. So all of the like quantitative, you know, more rigorous stuff that we're doing related to blockchains is, is kind of, uh, and, and all of the work that we're doing on curation is, um, you know, kind of a, a, method to the madness to ultimately get us to the end goal of, of this disclosure, disclosures library. Um, and, um, and I've written about it as well, right? It's, it's part of a flywheel. So, uh, do I want to build a, a media site? No. I already did that once. I love the CoinDesk people. I hope they do very well. Um, I'm not building another media business. Do uh, do we want to build a community? Of course. The community is not going to be a social network. It's you know a place to learn. It's a place for us to bootstrap and kind of coalesce people around a common mission. Um, and we'll certainly add tooling there. But but you know really the more important thing is this last piece of the puzzle, which is how do we build um, a data layer for crypto and then data services on top of that that make this asset class easier to understand. But it's a great question. It does, it does look, uh, you know, and I've gotten this, um, you know, from, you know, even some of our investors, they, they basically said, Oh, like I think there's a little bit of brand confusion right now in terms of what you guys are doing. And, um, and, and part of me is, uh, you know, you always you always don't want there to be, you know, confusion about your brand or, you know, particularly about any misalignment issues. But, um, but there's another part of me which is like, okay, that's fine. Like, you know, let's let's get all the pieces in place, and then we when we're like really ready to hit the go go switch, you know, we'll we'll kind of like unveil everything, and it'll it will all be beautiful, and it will make sense. Um, so uh, that's always a delicate balance. But you're asking the right questions, and 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 you know, hopefully that helped as an answer.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. Now, I would be curious to hear a bit about, you know, what, what's the timeline here? So what, what, what do you think is going to happen in the next, you know, 12 months, next, you know, 24 months?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we're, um, we're actively working with a number of, of, you know, high profile projects now on getting them um, on board as the kind of initial uh, registry participants. Um, and, you know, in nature of the beast and doing any decentralized network launches, it's got to start centralized. So we are, you know, certainly starting as the central maintainer and, and, and arbiter of, of who's going to get onto the list, but we're trying to make it as open access as possible. So, um, you know, I obviously, you know, know some of the older projects just, you know, by virtue of how much smaller the industry was five years ago than it is today, we want relationships with, you know, every single project that's launched, private and, and public. Um, and, and we want to be able to start, you know assessing you know whether they're interested in joining and 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 you know kind of who's going to be part of the initial list. So a lot of it is kind of political and bD driven right now. and then our our engineering team on the back end is building the um the user flows, the application infrastructure, and then and then ultimately the 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 blockchain mechanics themselves uh, that can you know, make all this you know kind of kind of work together.
0: right. And now community you mentioned community, and I think right now, even these reports, right? are community. Created community created. So people who want to like, who, who are you looking for and how can they get involved?
1: So uh, another thing, uh, that I found is, is pretty difficult. You know, I've, I've seen other research communities where you go to their telegram group and their telegram group has 40,000 people. And it's just like, when moon, when ICO, when airdrop, you know, like, it's just a bunch of like bullshit and, and completely counterproductive. So um, our community is actually pretty uh, exclusive and, and restricted um, and it's it's still just kind of volunteer contributors. It's, it's basically hobbyists and 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 you know folks that are doing this research in their spare time anyway. and they you know want to join to actually learn about you know the fundamentals and kind of inner workings of these networks not to like pump and dump and kind of talk their own book. So it's um, a lot of analysts, uh, a lot of kind of young computer science grads, uh, a lot of Investors, uh, you know, academics, um, but there's about 150 folks in the in the community right now, and we're probably going to get that up to 500 uh, by the end of this year, um, without kind of sacrificing the the quality of the conversation. So it's it's you know we do actually have a high bar. You know, we we you know certain folks that we already know or that have a, a certain standing in the industry that have kind of proven their bona fides as a um, as an investor or an analyst or what have you. You know, we kind of invite just based on knowing their credentials. Um, but then you know we also try to keep it open access where if someone's an up-and-comer, they can actually submit an application, you know, token pitch, give us a writing sample, and 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 you know, we can kind of go from there. You know, the goal is to make this open and accessible to anybody on the contributor side of things. But until we've actually built all that um, like Wikipedia like permissioning and infrastructure, we have to centrally manage it and, and it's just a bandwidth issue. So we have an open application that anybody can check out if if they'd like to join the community.
0: Okay, well, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. And and is the idea down the line also that maybe people who do that work and uh, get some token distribution from this creation token? Or is there some incentive model around that down the line as well?
1: Uh, Nothing uh, for the foreseeable future. Uh, I would love to find uh, a really smart way to do that. I don't think anyone's figured it out yet. It's not our core focus, um, so you know we we kind of take the approach that we're we're all in this together. Anything that's contributed by the analysts um, will never be resold by us. It will always be open and free. To the extent that changes in the future, we would only change it if if we could actually you know financial you know share the financial spoils with with the folks that were kind of early in the community. So, I'd say like hard no for the indefinite future. And I don't want to like mix the message or, or you know, have, because this is always a thing, right? Like, oh, there's like a, a little bit of like, you know, wink and nod. It's like, oh, we're not going to help you uh, and we're not going to pay you, but wink, wink, nod, nod. There may be this light at the end of the tunnel, this like magical airdrop or this, you know, this token, this like, you know, monetary incentive. Um, and I am, I am very, very reluctant to, to get anywhere near that. It's, you know, uh, let's, let's just start with the assumption that no one is ever getting paid anything. And this is like, if you, if you're interested in joining a community of, you know, kind of like-minded people then then, you know, welcome, let's, let's like build some cool shit together and, and help solve some of these information problems. Um, but, uh, but if not, and you know, you, you need to be paid for your work, totally understand, you know, come check in with us when we're in a position to do that.
0: Okay, I guess there's one last question that we must cover. Uh, I realized, especially since we're talking about you know disclosures and uh, you know and financial interests and all. So, w- what is the business model of Masari? I mean, presumably you guys will keep some of those tokens, but is there is that the case? And and is there something else as well?
1: Yeah. So uh, you know, we should be one of the initial validators of who gets onto the registry. Um, but we have uh, ideas for how to basically. Force competition and ensure that there are other um, validation services that emerge and basically compete away that side of the business from us. Um, I hope that we'll always have some share of it, but I don't think we want to be hundred percent because that defeats the whole purpose. Um, and if we assume that that market materializes over time and becomes, you know, tens of millions of dollars per year, then you know that's a pretty you know healthy healthy revenue line for us. Um, we are going to unwind the tokens over a multi-year defined period. Um, but how exactly that splits uh, is something that we're, we're kind of, you know, stress testing and, and, you know, peer reviewing right now. Um, but of course there will be, you know, some uh, reward element that accrues to us for launching and, and incubating the network. Um, but there is kind of a defined exit strategy. So, so, you know, we would have to liquidate over a certain course of, of time. And then, uh, finally, you know, we, I've, I think we've always wanted to build a data business. Um, and, this is just, I think, the first kind of critical missing piece of infrastructure. If we can bootstrap this public commons, there are fifty different value-added services we could build on top of that, that are you know completely different business lines. We're all kind of in the data service business, right? So, whether you're talking about on-blockchain analytics, whether you're talking about um, better trading tools, or or you know kind of business intelligence tools for for you know professional investors. Um, whether you're talking about uh, reporting tools or or kind of treasury management for the projects themselves, or, or or if you start to kind of verticalize and and look at some of the most exciting networks and say, oh, we can make a really interesting solution here, or or even get into, uh, you know, investment services, you know, in, in a sub market, right? So you know, one could be, you know, if Augur takes off and we have, you know, a, a, a massive uh, advantage. On a data processing side, in terms of like which auger uh, prediction markets we should make, you know, maybe we decide to become a market maker in in one of those sub-markets, um, or you know, decide to you know start you know staking pools for you know a variety of other you know uh, token you know based markets. So there's there's a lot of different directions that we could go. Many you know almost all of them make money. So uh, let's let's solve like the here and now problem, uh, and and you know over time. know we want to we want to do this the right way so
0: right although i guess that that is is going to be an interesting you know also potential conflict of interest there right because people often criticize this foundation structure that ethereum used to to do the fundraise but personally i actually think it's a good structure because it does have this you know funds uh, raced through a token sale or have like a designated purpose like there's like a actual checks and balances that they're used for that. You can't like build a for-profit business like with the same team and the same like here y- you do have much more of a blurry boundary I guess. How do you how are you planning to like manage those the tricky situations that can arise? So let's say somebody wants to build a business on, on like a validation business but you guys who are running the protocol are also building on this?
1: Yeah, so so here, here's maybe the easiest way to think about it, right? And, and we've thought about what the default should be. Um, but I think um, here could be a pretty easy and fair way to do it, right? Uh, on the one hand, we have all these tokens that we're going to unwind over time. Um, and I would say any tokens that we have that we don't distribute are non-voting. So we should never be able to vote our own tokens and provide validation work, right? So. Yes, we could sell them, we could distribute them strategically over a period of time, but we're not actually going to be able to vote them. So then the only voters uh, in the system are the ones that have actually you know, uh, acquired tokens from us. Um, and the, the tricky part is not all of them are going to necessarily want to do the validation work. So we should also be the default validator at first. So we have 100 percent market share on validation from on day one. Right. And that's a problem. But one way that you might be able to solve it and, and kind of compete away our business immediately is to tell the, um, to tell the token holders, hey, uh, you, you must vote. If you don't vote, you'll lose your stake. But by the way, you can also delegate your vote to someone. And you can delegate to a, a, some kind of third party validation service, of which we're the first. But if you don't vote and you delegate to us, we're going to take 100% of the network fees. like. 100% of the rake, you basically get no dividends and, and you essentially just own the token. And if it appreciates in value, then, then you know, that's, that's where the, your, your economic come in. What that I hope would do is the fee market materializes is give other validation services an opening to say, hey, we're going to come in in exchange for your voting power. We're going to provide the same quality of service, but we're going to rebate back to you 50% of the fees that we make. So any rational token holder would say, well, Masari is great, um, but to prevent them double dipping and to ensure that we have kind of a a, a nice distributed validation framework uh, and so that we can actually earn better fees, we are, um, we're going to delegate to these other guys. So Masari, you've just lost our vote. Sorry. And I, I think, you know, what would happen in a scenario like that is you'd ultimately have, you know, three or four—you know—kind of a handful of entities that would compete for that business, and you'd have some market equilibrium for what the fee sharing structure should be, and then ultimately, you know, kind of go from there. So, uh, and 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 there are things you can do around like liquid democracy, where you know maybe even the validators kind of share applications. It's not quite so concentrated, but you know, it, it's one of the first things that we're thinking about decentralizing and 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 mitigating those conflicts. And I think we've got some some good ideas how they work in the wild. We got to, we got a stress test first
0: yeah, that will certainly be interesting to see. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on. It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you very much. Have a good one.
0: And thanks so much for a listener for once again tuning in. So we're of course gonna have links in the show notes to Messari's website OnChainFX, some of the blog posts written about it, as well as the place where you can make an application if you want to become a contributor, a community member and help them help them make these reports much more plentiful and you know well documented. so. You know, check out for that and you know thanks so much for joining us we put out new episodes of epicenter every week and you can of course get them on all your so your itunes soundcloud or any podcast application or on video on youtube.com episode bitcoin so yeah we look forward to seeing you again next week